Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College, and I'm here today in London with Ron Emitter, Professor of History and Politics of Modern China at the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford, and author of several distinguished books, most recently, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana, thank you so much for making the time. Welcome aboard. Great to be here, Mike, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Before we go any further, I just have to give listeners uh, a sense of where we are sitting. We are in the British Academy, right in the heart of Westminster, right in the heart of uh, official London. From the window that I'm looking out, I can see Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament. And just about a block away from here is where Charles de Gaulle gave his famous 1940 address uh, 83 years ago yesterday. So we really are in a spectacular place, a little bit better than than old Ruth Hall. So, Rana, thank you for uh, putting this together for us. Huge pleasure. And I'd say another Charles was actually not so far away not long ago, because just a few weeks ago in May, you would have looked out that same window and seen the fly past of our Royal Air Force, which was, of course, celebrating the coronation of King Charles III, taking place just, well, really uh, less than half a mile from where we are now. Rana, you've written a lot on China. This is really kind of what I want to talk about, your book, uh, China's Good War. And, and China, right now, the U.S. Secretary of State is in China hoping to sort of reset relations with the Chinese foreign minister and, and look for a kind of positive way uh, forward. It's such a difficult challenge conceptually, I think, for Americans and for Europeans trying to figure out, is China a partner? Is it a rival? Is it a threat? And I think a lot of the confusion, at least in our two countries, comes from a real lack of understanding of China's history and how that history has shaped the way that China sees the world today. Were these the kinds of themes you set out to explore in the book? I thought that the historical element was an absolutely crucial part of what I wanted people to understand about China today. So yes, when I do think about Chinese history, it's in large part because it has so much to say about the way that China operates in the world today. If I was going to make a sweeping statement, why don't we start the conversation with a sweeping statement? I would say that certainly compared to uh, the United States or even Britain, historical consciousness and awareness of China's own historical past and precedent shapes the minds of policymakers, of thinkers, of the media, and of people who make decisions in China even more than it does in most Western countries. Quite often, that is the history of war and conflict, which has been a very central part of the way that China has essentially experienced history in the last hundred or more years. But it can also refer to those longer traditions, say, of history and philosophy, such as Confucianism, which also have a role in shaping China. So yeah, history sits very central in the way that I want us to understand China in the present. Was that what you set out to write, or did that theme kind of evolve as you were looking at China's World War II? What were the research questions that you began with? Well, I started very much as a historian. In fact, I started by studying Chinese um, 
in my university course when I first came out of high school. Um, for American listeners, I should say that in the UK, we have a slightly different system in university. We basically study just one subject in depth. And I decided to study Chinese and Chinese language uh, at that time, uh, in part because actually growing up in Britain in the late 80s, early 90s, actually, uh, China was about as remote from anything that I had known at that time that I could possibly imagine. Uh, it's very, very different today, of course. But at that point, it was something that really was quite remote in terms of everyday experience. And as I learned the language better, I began to become more fascinated by Chinese history in large parts, because even in the modern era, even in the 20th century, it became obvious that there were huge gaps in what we know about that historical period. If you think about a period like World War II, I think for most people in the West, in the US, in Western Europe, in Britain, um, large parts of that history is very well known. You just have to name a battle or um, a, a particular political figure, uh, Churchill, Roosevelt, Alamein, the D-Day, whatever it might be. These are all very, very familiar staging posts. But it became increasingly obvious to me that for so many parts of modern Chinese history, there weren't these kind of staging posts that people were familiar with. And so that's why I decided that I wanted to get uh, to study in more depth the history of modern China. I started really with the 1930s, uh, where I, a kind of area where I've stayed uh, quite close to in terms of my own research, in particular the period when the Japanese invaded northeast China, the area known as Manchuria, back in the 1930s. My initial interest there really was purely historical, trying to find out what happened, how people reacted, why this becomes such a, an earth-shaking event at the time. And it was only later that I came to understand that actually many of these events, which seemed in some ways quite distant, decades and decades ago, actually have a resonance in interpreting China in the present day. So sometimes we historians think about writing to correct a misperception or to um, maybe set a record straight or add a dimension. It sounds like what you were doing is really trying to fill what was a very serious gap in people's knowledge, at least in this part of the world, where people, it wasn't that people misunderstood China, it was that they just hadn't thought of China really at all in this context. I think that's right, Mike, but actually, in a sense, I was trying to do two things at once. One was to fill in a gap in a part of history which, as you say, hadn't really been much covered. Um, I mean, so that, that first instance I mentioned, the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931, actually a lot of standard textbooks do have some mention of it, but it's usually mentioned as something that was a sort of staging post on the way to World War II. In a sense, what happened in Asia was only important because of what it meant later for Europe and for the example that it gave to, to Hitler and Mussolini. But what I was interested in was the way in which the Chinese themselves had reacted to the Japanese invasion. And in many cases, for instance, in the occupied areas themselves, just as in occupied France during World War II, we have stories of collaboration as well as resistance, a whole variety of narratives that were maybe more complex than an initial rather kind of heroic overview of invasion and resistance might suggest. And that was the other part of what I wanted to do. As I say, this was a story that in some ways I think just wasn't at all well known in the Western world. But in China itself, there are a lot of political constraints in terms of how the story is told. And in particular, anything that puts forward the idea that there was a complexity in the response of uh, the Chinese 
who were under Japanese occupation. In other words, the fact that there was some level of local collaboration with the invaders as well as resistance to them. This was very hard to actually talk about in the Chinese context. So part of my purpose was trying to get that wider story in which often the darker, more uh, complicated parts of the narrative could be talked about, as well as the version that had emerged decades later in terms of propaganda in China about fierce resistance to the invaders. So let's get into the argument of the book. What 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 you what you talk about in the book is this, you, you talk about it as an ethically constitutive story uh, by which uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but by, by which I think you mean a conscious rewriting of history by the Chinese government in the present, not only to rewrite the history of the past, but to justify some of the politics and some of the policies that they want to engage both in the present and in the future. Would you would you elaborate maybe on that, or tell me where where I maybe I don't have the nuances quite right? No, I think you've got the nuances exactly right, actually, uh, Mike. So let me just um, say a quick word about what that uh, what the idea, the central idea of the book is. So China's Good War was, in a sense, the third book that I've written about China's World War II experience. The first was a book over 20 years ago called The Manchurian Myth, which was largely about the 1931 invasion by the Japanese, which I was mentioning in our, our conversation earlier. Then I wrote a book which in the US goes under the title Forgotten Ally in uh, Britain. It's known as China's War with Japan. But it's basically a history of China's main World War II experience from the uh, um, outbreak of war at the Marco Polo Bridge just out, outside Beijing in 1937, all the way through to the end of the war on VJ Day in uh, September 1945, after, of course, the sudden ending of the war with the Soviet invasion, the atomic bombings in summer of 1945. So those two books were essentially works of history that looked at what had happened at that time try to analyze them. China's Good War is different because it's trying to make an argument that today's China, the China of the 2020s, the China of Xi Jinping, still draws on the collective memory of World War II as a way of telling a story about China itself in the present day. And that's what I meant by that phrase, ethically constituted story. Because what China does today, actually in some ways, is not dissimilar to what other countries, including Britain actually does, and to some extent the United States, which is to take the story of World War II and make it the story of what the great oral historian uh, Studs Terkel ironically called the Good War. In other words, the idea that this was the last time, you know, 1930s up to 45, when the democracies got together and whatever their differences, they fought together against a terrible foe, the Axis powers, the Germans, the Japanese, to, to, uh, to, to allow the forces of freedom to win. Now, we all know, not least listeners to this podcast, that the story is more complex than that. Not least you have to fit the Soviet Union into it, which definitely wasn't fighting for liberal democracy. But what China has done in recent years is to add what you might call an extra element to the story. Because basically, and I'm exaggerating slightly, but not that much here, I would say that when you ask most Westerners to give, you know, a 30-second summary of what happened in World War II, it's almost certainly the case that China doesn't come anywhere into that story. It's hardly ever mentioned. Japan, yes. Pearl Harbor, yes. Uh, you know, Iwo Jima, uh, Midway, whatever you want to mention, those might well be in there. But the fact that China was the longest single uh, theatre of World War II, 1937 to, to 45, that although the casualty figures are still you know, very, very unclear, certainly responsible figures for deaths caused by the war, which include things like the massive famine that took place in central China during the war, could push the uh, casualty, the death figures up uh, to 10 million or, or, be, or beyond. And 
refugees also fleeing within their own country, 80 to 100 million, again, are numbers that people have responsibly put forward as the level of disruption that's happened at that particular particular time. So all of those stories mean that clearly the experience of World War II was highly traumatic. But until recent years, the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic of China, never really made full propaganda use of that World War II period. To some extent, under Chairman Mao, back in the period from the 50s to the 70s, there was a mention, of course, of fighting the Japanese. It wasn't completely absent. But that was really just the story of the Chinese communists specifically. The uh, nationalist Kuomintang, uh, um, rulers of China under Chiang Kai-shek were simply not mentioned because, of course, after 1949, they'd been exiled to the island of Taiwan, which they essentially remained on ever uh, ever since. And it wasn't until a much later era, from the 1980s, 90s and onwards, that the mainland of China, the communist regime, has started to reclaim that World War II story as a heroic story of resistance, regardless of whether you were a communist or a nationalist. So there's a change in the narrative there. And that's the ethical core of the story that China wants to tell now about its own good war, World War II, when it too was an anti-fascist ally against the forces of darkness. I think this is the thing about your book that I that it, I, I liked so much the first time I read it. And I'm just so impressed by every time that I teach it and every time that I talk to people about it, the way you're able to connect that reinvention of history, you could almost say a, a, an ending of the period of forgetfulness of that history, that that there's almost a conscious re-remembering of it. And the way you're able to connect that to what the state is trying to do. I mean, I've seen this happen a little bit in France uh, to a slightly smaller extent. I think you can feel it walking around London. Uh, you can certainly see it in Hollywood and the way that the United States depicts it. There's a way in which you take that past event to distill it. What's different in China, of course, is that that like Russia, there isn't an alternative kind of civic space to shape that narrative. It is it is largely government driven. So I guess I want to ask you, when you were putting this book together, were these themes you were thinking about before you began the research or how did the book change as you started to get yourself into it? How did these themes really come to the fore? So that, as you said, it's not just a history of China's World War II. It's really a history of China remembering again or unforgetting its war. Absolutely, Mike. Uh, my previous book, um, Forgotten Ally, was very much the history of China in World War II. But China's Good War is very much about how the Chinese remember the war now. And thank you for that very, very generous characterization of the of the book. But I'll push back against in, in one element only and say that I think actually there is more space, more civil society where the war is discussed in China that perhaps is apparent on the surface. And that's one of the things to answer your question that drew me into the subject. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, it is absolutely true that the power that the state and the party state, the Chinese Communist Party, which of course dominates China, um, has the capacity to essentially tell a very powerful propaganda-like story about why World War II matters. And that message can be used in all sorts of different ways. So it can be used, say, uh, on the 3rd of September 2015, when in the center of uh, Beijing in Tiananmen Square, a massive parade was held with thousands of soldiers marching to mark the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II in front of Xi Jinping, a huge display of China's might. And the message there is a very state-directed message, which is, in the past, China was weak. It was invaded by its neighbor, Japan. It suffered terribly. By building up a strong army like the one we're parading here in Tiananmen Square, that will never happen again. So that sort of message, in a sense, is, is mainstream for many authoritarian states that want to project power. Russia, of course, today is doing that in terms of Putin 
drawing over and over again on World War II parallels, most of them, frankly, pretty spurious in terms of his invasion of uh, Ukraine. But in China, as in Russia, there is another story, a local story, and one that is more complex. So let me tell you briefly about um, interviews I had with um, some people, not yeah, some older people, in Chongqing, in southwest China. Uh, one of the places I've been over the years uh, to find out more about the wartime period, because many will know that Chongqing, under its own Western, old Western, uh, Westernized name of, many people will know that Chongqing, under its old Westernized name of Chongqing, was the temporary wartime capital of China between 1937 and 46. And in Chongqing, there were many people who essentially had suffered through the horrors of living in a capital under attack and under fire. There were air raids, there were incendiary bombs, uh, the city was cut off largely from supplies, prices went up, there was massive inflation, and many people suffered from disease and hunger during the wartime years, but the city never actually fell to the Japanese. In the other Allied powers, this would have been a story of great heroism, but that story was never told in the era of Mao because Chongqing was not the Chinese communist capital during the war, but the Chinese nationalist capital. And the nationalists, of course, became the enemy after the, uh, the end of the civil war in, in 1949. But that situation changed in the 1990s and 2000s as China began to open up just a little bit, allow more space for people to tell stories and push back against the official narrative. And that's when all of these stories from by by now older people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, but who had been children or young men and women during the wartime years, were told in public for the first time. In fact, there's a great uh, series that was both uh, published as a book and as a television series of interviews with refugees who had fled from eastern China in the face of the Japanese invasion, made their way upriver to Chongqing and areas around that. And they told stories of how cold they were and how hungry they were and how they had had to sort of, you know, swim across various places where there weren't boats and all sorts of things that made, meant they had suffered very, very greatly. A little bit actually for, you know, any British listeners, like stories of evacuees during wartime in, uh, from the Blitz in London who were sent out to the, uh, to the countryside. And one of the interviewees said to one of the interviewers, the academics who were taking these oral history interviews in the early 2000s, he said was the effect of, I'm really glad that we can tell these stories because previously we could only tell them inside the family. But we could never talk about them publicly because they were politically you know, not, not permissible. And he said, you know, I'm an old man now. I'm not afraid of dying. That comes to us all. But he said, but I was very frightened that I would die without being able to tell my wartime stories honestly and openly. And that space to tell the stories of life under the nationalist uh, regime in the wartime period, they're not officially approved by the communist government. The communist government isn't going out there begging people to tell these stories, but the space that opened up to talk about the wartime more broadly allowed ordinary people, allowed families, and allowed civic associations to get together and find space to tell those stories. And that provided a kind of recovery from a trauma that had been caused not just by, of course, the experience of, of suffering under Japanese bombardment back in the 40s, but also being told for decade after decade, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, that they could not talk about these things in public because they didn't fit the narrative that only the communists had resisted the Japanese and that the nationalists had nothing to do with it. So I think one of the things that your book does that uh, I also am impressed by and that I always talk to, to people about is it does two other things. It helps us 
think of history as a way to understand someone else's mindset, what we call at the Army War College cultural empathy, a way to understand the way somebody else is thinking because their history is different. The other skill that you articulate so beautifully, that you use so beautifully, is is to connect the history that gets written with the time period in which people are writing it. Because as you and I know, history changes depending upon the time period in, in which when one is one is living. So as you worked on this project and as you were consciously drawing those connections between past and present, did your view and understanding of China and its behavior change as you work on this book and as you wrote it? That's um, a really astute question, Mike, actually, and not one that someone has asked me before. But I think the answer at one level is yes, but with a, with a, with a caveat. So let me, let me give you both. During the time that I've been looking at the central element of the book, which is the way in which China broadly has chosen to remember and draw on the collective memory of its own World War II experience, China itself in the present day has changed very considerably. So I started looking into the subject first. Actually, when I, I visited a museum, I went almost on a whim, actually, to the, um, I, say, I guess you might always call it the National Museum of, uh, of the Second World War. It's called the Memorial Museum to the War of Resistance Against Japanese Aggression, which gives you uh, some uh, idea of how the uh, the war is being branded in China even today. And it's a fascinating museum, well worth visiting, lots of interesting artifacts, and it's located on the site of the Marco Polo Bridge where the war broke out between China and Japan back in the 1930s, back in 1937, in, in fact. And that China, the one that I visited uh, in 1997, you know, best part of a quarter of a century ago, was one that in retrospect was much more open in many ways than the one now. Tiananmen Square and the killings in Tiananmen Square had happened you know, less than 10 years before 1989. But China was beginning to come back into the world. And at that point, remember, the United States was keen to help China become a player in global politics. Uh, it uh, was beginning the path to take China to the World Trade Organization at that time, for instance. So it was a relatively open time, both in terms of China's attitude towards the US, but also in terms of the relationship with Taiwan, which of course is when many of the Chinese nationalists had fled after 1949. And that made it a time when discussion of World War II was more open and perhaps more complex than it had been before or in some ways would become later on. And I'd say that, you know, until the pandemic, I'd certainly been going back to China once every year, two years, something like that, maybe even a couple of times a year on, on, on some occasions. And hope to be doing so again, I should uh, should add, to find out what's been happening to all this uh, this history. But during that time, China came to change as well. And I would say that broadly speaking, from the 2010s onward, there has been more of a sense that there's a nervousness about history. History has become more politicized once again. Even elements such as World War II history have been pushed back a little bit more towards looking at what the Communist Party did and that contribution towards the ultimate revolutionary victory. And less emphasis perhaps on the Chinese nationalists who have been more in the focus of the 1990s and, uh, and, and 2000s. So it was impossible to look at the phenomenon of how China has dealt with World War II without being conscious each time I flew in and was in Beijing or in Shanghai or in Chongqing or wherever it might be, um, as to how the topic I was looking at, that memory of World War II, fitted into yet another one of the phases of China's ever-changing engagement with the world, and particularly as that relationship with the West became somewhat more wary, even hostile, during the, uh, the, the 20, uh, 2010s. But I said that there was a sort of but in terms of the way that I look at change over time on this topic. 
And the thing that I have remained astounded by, in a sense, but actually pleased to have spotted, is that at some level, this emergence of World War II as an idea that continues to shape China has remained constant. Because when I was looking at these museums and you know, other aspects and films and TV series and so forth, dealing with that wartime period back in the early 90s, early 2000s, I wondered if it might be a flash in the pan. You know, Later on, I'd write, oh, well, there was this brief period of about four or five years when everyone in China was obsessed with World War II and then it went away and they were obsessed with something else. That really hasn't been the case. You know, These museums, admittedly, they're built to last, but even in things that are built to last in China can go quite quickly, and they're still very much there. The movies continue to be poured out, sometimes with you know different propaganda elements, but very much that World War II um, idea still there. And there are references, even when China's out in the wider world, for instance, at the United Nations, China today will say often very openly, we deserve to have a place in today's United Nations because like the Americans, we were part of that generation that fought, in, fought against the Axis in World War II and earned the right to a place on the UN Security Council back in 1945. And I would say that the constancy of that World War II idea is one of the things that reassured me that actually there really is a phenomenon there that is worth looking at, drilling down into and understanding. And I would encourage everybody to go and read the book to t- see your treatment of the Cairo conference and how this went for this, which is the only of the big of the World War II conferences that China uh, attended. But it was Chiang Kai-shek and the way that Mao and the communists have kind of usurped that. Uh, we are actually, believe it or not, beginning to run out of time. So I want to ask you two tough questions and two easy questions. The first tough question, and it may it may end up being an easy question. Uh, how has your book been received in China? Has it been translated there, reviewed there? What are the Chinese saying about your work? Not a tough question at all, but a very interesting one, uh, Mike. So I would say that, first of all, there has been a Chinese translation. Uh, it's available in Taiwan and certainly has been read there. There isn't, as far as I know, uh, a mainland Chinese translation. Uh, but I do know from contacts from scholars, academics and others that English language copies of the book have been made available in China and have been discussed there as well. So uh, it's always a little bit, um, you know, sort of uh, like receiving uh, 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 a message from a very kind of far off um, distant uh, um, outstation <laughs> when you get news that um, something of yours has been discussed in China, because quite often the discussion will take place in a seminar context. There isn't necessarily a written record of it. But I've been assured that the ideas in it are ones that have provoked interest within China itself. The book is obviously written in English for a Western audience, but I'm always delighted when something that I write in the West nonetheless finds uh, a point of discussion in China that people want to take up. And that does appear to have been the case, at least on a small level, with the book China's Good Woman. Yeah, my Potsdam book got translated by a, a Chinese um, publisher in Changsha, which is where my older daughter is from. Our two daughters are adopted from China. So I, t- I took that coincidence to mean something symbolic, though. I've never heard anything from anybody in China uh, about the book. Here's the second question, and by far the harder one. Uh, a lot of our listeners are in the policymaking arena. They're security professionals. What do you think your work suggests about the way they should be thinking about China and the way they should be thinking about the West's interaction with China? I think the toughest thing to judge is how to make use of something which I think is indubitably true, and which I said earlier in the conversation, which is that China takes history, its own history, very seriously and uses it as a framework to make its own policy decisions, but then to calibrate that so that 
one neither ignores that reality because I think it is real in shaping perceptions, for instance, of threat in China. The idea that a country which in maybe not living memory, but at least in recent historical memory, has been invaded on various occasions, will act very differently from a country that has you know, large oceans protecting it on, on either side. But at the same time, also remembering that history is not everything. As a historian, I feel slightly wary about saying that. But of course, lots of other things matter. You know, Contemporary security matters, economics matters, uh, norms matter. In other words, giving history its right place in interpreting how China presents itself to the world, neither ignoring it, nor saying that China becomes so different because of its historical experience that we can't possibly interpret anything that goes on within China itself. And I think the best answer to that is to know as much Chinese history as possible, from which you then have a deeper knowledge base on which to judge what's important and what perhaps is less so. And again, as, as you pointed out in the book so beautifully, to understand history in all of its dimensions, what the Chinese have chosen to forget, what they've chosen to remember, how they've reinterpreted all of this, um, the, the, the way that the society has shaped its history is just so critical. It, it, I agree with you that it has to get beyond an understanding of history. I think we would also agree to say it would be almost impossible to think about China as a problem without a serious attempt to understand its history in all of the many complex facets that you've described. And you're shaking your head vigorously, yes. So I'm hopeful that, that we're in agreement. And I owe you the two easy questions. So uh, I always like to ask uh, my, my smart friends what they're reading. So what are you reading right now? Right now, um, I well, I think probably like most people, probably like you, uh, Mike. I'm juggling a whole lot of things and keeping them on the uh, uh, on the on the go. But right now, I'm actually reading a novel which has to do with conflict, but it's conflict that's a very long way away from uh, World War II or China. And that's a book called Act of Oblivion by the British novelist Robert Harris, and it's based on a period that actually I've recently found myself reading quite a lot about and becoming very interested in, which is the English Civil War period. I say that carefully because, of course, Americans, when they hear the word Civil War, think, of course, of 1861 to 65. But Brits, or at least English people, who are quite the same thing, tend to think of the 17th century and the period when England almost tore itself apart when King Charles fought uh, Cromwell and Parliament. And this is a novel, but it's based on something that really happened, which is uh, when the regicides, the men who signed the death warrant for King Charles I um, in 1649, um, after the restoration of King Charles II, Essentially, they sent out bounty hunters, I suppose is the best way to put it, to go and chase down some of the men who uh, actually had signed that death warrant on King Charles. And Robert Harris, who's, uh, Harris, who's uh, uh, a man who knows how to tell a story like nobody's business, has turned this piece of 17th century history into an absolutely gripping novel. I'm really enjoying it. Last question I have to ask any historian I sit down and talk with. What are you writing right now? Well... This may sound like variations on a theme, Mike, but I am going back to war. Um, but I'm going back to a different war, or the related one, and from a slightly different angle. Um, I still think there's a lot that we as historians need to know about the late 1940s in China. 1945, when the war with Japan ends. 1949, when the Civil War ends and the um, uh, Mao and the communists uh, take over the country. And in between, of course, there's a story of civil war, but there's also a story of lots of other things that are going on. That's the moment when China becomes a power of the United Nations. That's the moment when lots of young men and young women essentially you know, throw off their past lives and join the communist revolution. And I've been having an amazing time reading diaries, reading documents, reading um, archival materials to try and reconstruct the experience of that period, whether um, it is you know, the case of one diary I've read, a, 
young woman, 23 years old, basically uh, dividing her time between learning the Marxist language that shapes her revolutionary experience as a young communist, but also really worrying about her weight and her appearance in the way that, you know, young people, men and women do in all sorts of societies and various various other times. A reminder that people who make revolutions are revolutionaries but they're also human beings as well. And understanding their motivations has to be at the base of understanding how terrible conflicts like the Chinese Civil War emerged as well. I remind of another level of complexity between structure and individual agency, but we don't have time to get into that uh, here. So Rana, uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for arranging for this fabulous room. Uh, I encourage everyone interested in China, which should include virtually everybody listening to this podcast, uh, to read uh, Rana's work on China and to think about what it means for us and for our strategic approach to China. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please send us your comments on this episode and send us suggestions for future episodes. You can subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcatcher of choice. And please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from The War Room, I'm Michael Nyberg. We're going to sit and have a cup of coffee and look at this beautiful view over Westminster. Thank you, Rana, one last time for joining us, and I hope that we will be talking with you again soon. Thanks very much indeed, Mike. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.